Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At bluenile.com, you can design a one of a kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to bluenile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at bluenile.com for $50 off your purchase. bluenile.com code LISTEN. Tortoise Hello, it's Basha here and you're listening to the Slow Newscast from Tortoise. This week, we're taking a journey down a river, a sick river, because for some time now, it's been dying. And like all things in nature, when you really take the time to look closer, like fungus, like root systems, like trees, this river is part of something so much bigger and its fate matters. In the case of this one sick river, a remarkable campaigner is taking matters into his own hands and he's trying to save it. And so for weeks, our reporter Barney McIntyre has been exploring what the fate of this one small urban tributary says about our attitude to nature in a time of crisis. So join Barney as he takes you on a trip to save the River Brent. The world is moving to the city. Millions of us every year. And as we do, there's a risk that we fall into the habit of thinking of the world as two separate realms, cities and nature. If we worry about the future of the planet, it's often the vast spaces that preoccupy us. The Amazon basin, the Siberian plateau, Greenland. That's where we think the battle to save planet Earth will be won and lost. But what about the River Brent? A river you've never seen, or heard of, or worried about. A river we seem to have written off. But it's a lovely natural stretch of river with meanders and curves, shallows, hydromorphologically interesting, high scoring. You've got a good shape of water coming through here. Uh, Potentially lots of opportunities for habitat. It's a muggy, midsummer day in the suburbs of West London. The newly built Elizabeth train line trundles overhead, connecting Sleepy Hanwell with Paddington and the city beyond. Forty feet below it trickles the Brent. It rises from the hills just to the north of London, so around Barnet and Edgware. Uh, You've got the Dollis Brook, the Folly Brook... Silk Stream. We've got the Wealdstone Brook. It's one of roughly two dozen tributaries that feed the Thames River. Together, they account for over 200 miles of waterways within the M25 ring road. Most now lie hidden, submerged and straightened over the years by layers of concrete. Fleet Street, Bayswater, Knightsbridge, Westbourne, Holborn, all named after rivers long forgotten. Here, though, in Hanwell Park, the Brent is open to the air. A gurgling streak of brown water weaves its way between the Victorian arches that hold up the train line. 
Shady green banks are host to joggers, dog walkers and ducks. But this little river is suffering. It's been forced to carry an unbearable load. Plastic bag, Covid mask, wet wipe. Oh shit, spray of water straight on the face, don't be doing that. Wet wipe, wet wipe, so that is wet wipes. It's sewage, it's turd, failing infrastructure, let's get it sorted. The man in the river is Ben Morris. Oh my god. He's the founder of Clean Up the River Brent, or Curb for short. And for the past few years, he's spent a lot of time wading through the odds and ends of urban life. Uh, plastic bags, bah, bah, bah. out it comes, out it comes. So this beautiful river park, with lovely meanders, lovely natural river flowing through it, has been very neglected. It's afflicted with sewage, oil dumping. There's a sheen of oil all the way across the river. Coming down, it's been coming down for weeks now. And then just a lot of casual fly tipping, broken bicycles, shopping trolleys, uh, electric cable. It's just full of crap. It's full of visible and invisible crap. The European Union's Water Framework Directive described the Brent as a heavily modified water body with poor ecological potential. A hopeless case by the sound of it. Despite those odds, Ben has decided to do something. I was out walking with my dog one day in October 21 in Pittshanger Park, my local park, and I noticed that there was a foul, sour smell sailing my nostrils and I looked down at the river and the whole river bed had turned white. Uh, the water was sort of greyish in colour as far as the eye could see and there was clearly something had gone very wrong. Kind of the His life has become entwined with the Brents. He spends hours leading teams of volunteers down to the banks to gather floating rubbish or hack down invasive plants. And um, I just thought, I can't just go home and pretend I haven't seen this, i better do something about it. So I just started phoning up numbers. I had someone put me onto the Environment Agency. I didn't really, wasn't really aware of what you do. Since that moment, I've phoned the Environment Agency in Thameswater probably most weeks. Uh, but that was the first time. After countless hours spent on hold, Ben came to Tortoise. He showed us his catalogue of incidents on the Brent. Hundreds of photos of wet wipes. Long descriptions of flotsam filling the river. Eventually, he convinced us. We needed to see it for ourselves. Is that Hello, good morning. My producer, Immy Harper, and I joined him for a river walk. You must be Barney. See, I guess you recognise me from the bucket. He looks the part. Rubber boots, large blue overalls, and industrial-grade thick red gloves. A bucket containing a homemade water test kit. I'm curious as to what it will say, how it's supposed to help. And uh, here we are, by the River Brent. Love it, let's get cracking. <laughs> the Brent doesn't feed the Amazon. Whether or not it can support a population of ugly little gudgeon fish won't affect the Siberian plateau one way or another, or change the rate that Greenland's ice sheet is melting. But what if, somehow, it connects us to all those things. I mean, we're a small island and everybody's near a river. Connects a city to nature and us to our planet. As part of our, our own 
the human psyche, I think it's something we, we enjoy and it's something that gives us a feeling of well-being. Would we throw rubbish into it if we thought about it that way? I've been in a, a dry suit before up to my chest and been in floating chip fat. Or let a water company tip human waste into it without consequence. Water falls from the sky, people think they own it. Would we let the Brent expire? She needs intervention to keep her alive, the Brent. It's not a healthy river, it's a sick river. There is barely a single river that exists today that has not been spanned, dammed, diverted or filled with our waste. The question is, do we care enough to save them? I'm Barney McIntyre, and I've been reporting for Tortoise since we got started as a newsroom, figuring out how we cover climate and net zero, energy and the environment. For the past few years, water, and in particular the pollution of Britain's rivers, has got political. Sewage in the sea, runoff into rivers, rows over privatised water companies, pay, profits and the problems of an antiquated system. So when Ben came to talk to us about the Brent, it felt like a chance to investigate how our rivers have got into such a mess. Who's responsible? And what we, by which I mean each of us, can do to make a difference. This isn't some monumental campaign. It won't save the Amazon or safeguard biodiversity from extinction. It's about sorting out the Brent. But to me, it seemed like a chance to think about nature, not in beautifully shot TV programmes or apocalyptic items on the news, but on the walk home from work. A chance to ask whether the city is bound to suffocate nature, or whether nature, given the chance, will make the city its home. This is the slow newscast from Tortoise. Sick River, saving the Brent. It's July this year, and the communications team at Britain's biggest water company is having another tough day. Thames Water has been fined £3.3 million for pumping millions of litres of raw sewage into rivers near Gatwick Airport in Sussex. The event, which happened in 2017, ended up killing more than 1,500 fish. The court heard how sewage spilled into the river for six hours, but no alarm was in place to alert staff. For Thames Water, it could not be worse timing. Days before, the chief executive of the company, Sarah Bentley, stepped down. Even after agreeing to give up her bonus because of sewage spills, the pressure had become too much. A former Thames Water executive described her departure as inevitable. We've voiced up what they told us. It was pretty clear early on that she was butting heads with the major shareholders. Given they hired her and the politics of it all, her departure was going to be a question of when, not if. So she walks. Soon after, newspapers begin splashing the news about Thames Water's financial troubles. Now the government is reportedly drawing up contingency plans for the collapse of Thames Water. It comes as a reportedly growing doubt in Whitehall about the ability of Britain's biggest water company to service its £14 billion debt pile. Relations with the investors are already on a knife edge. Another headline about crap isn't helping. More often than not, these kind of sewage spills are the result of outdated infrastructure. The solution is to preemptively invest in new reservoirs, 
pipes, drains and outflows. After Margaret Thatcher privatised Britain's water in 1989, it was hoped repairs would follow. When the water companies were privatised, it was widely understood that the reason for doing it was that they needed to do a lot of investment, investment that hadn't taken place under the Conservative governments of the 1980s. This is Dieter Helm. He's one of the most respected thinkers on environment and government policy in the world. The central motivation was that these private balance sheets would be used to borrow money to do investment so current customers didn't have to pay, oh, and current voters too. That investment never quite materialised. Instead of going into plumbing, it largely went into pockets. Annual investment in wastewater has declined 7% since the 1990s, while dividends totaled £13.4 billion over the last decade and earnings of the nine biggest water company directors rose by over 8% last year. Leaked data shows they were replacing England's crumbling pipe network at a snail's pace. Current plans assume the average life of an asset is 200 years. It's no wonder so much of Britain still relies on ancient pipes. They're everywhere, including on the Brent. Um, So we're standing right as we speak here. You can see the slightly raised bit of ground here. This is a trunk sewer, uh, which is three metres diameter and was built, I understand, in the 20s or 30s. And basically this carries almost all the sewage from northwest London to Mogden Sewage Works, which is down in uh, Twickenham, sort of on the Thames. London's sewer system was originally built on fears about containing the plague. It looks a bit like a kind of Piero della Francesca kind of exterior. It's very lovely classical design. But it's entirely unfit for the demands of a modern-day megacity. And it's, it's going, as you can see, it's, there's raised ground over it, and it's going to go under the river and then back up again. What are we looking at here, Ben? So this is a raised concrete platform. It's got three or four slits cut into it from which you can hear the gushing of water. That is sewage passing directly below us and on its way south to Mogden. God, it stinks. It's all the sewage of pretty much northwest London. It serves well over a million people, this. So this is flowing, you know, all the way up Harrow, Ryslip, everywhere else. And there are photographs of the construction of this, and, it, yeah, it's three metres wide. You could sort of drive a Piccadilly line train down this. It's got a slight kind of chemically odour to it as well, doesn't it? Yeah, so it's obviously, it's not only human waste, it's a lot of soap a lot of laundry products, anything that people flush down the drain, basically. Whatever comes out of the drain of, of, a, of a house or a business is going to end up in there. So if we, if we go down here and I'll, I'll show Next, you. Ben takes us over to the place where sewage travels under the brand. This is a piece of Thames water infrastructure, but curiously, this is unlicensed. Directly above the pipe, you can see two thick metal caps, each about a metre wide. Ben explains how these flip open after a deluge when the tide of grey water gathers enough force. I'm shocked. It seems like a pretty archaic form of engineering. So I I think this was built around 1930, which was when, you know, this area was not really built on until that sort of time. We, We were sort of outside of London, really, and then a lot of building happened 
up to the northwest of London, a lot of those suburbs were constructed. So uh, it's it's metro. This is this is the consequence of metro land. You know, all all of that housing that was built up there was needed to be served by something like this. And I think it's probably no coincidence that it's so close to the river. In fact, the sewage networks have tended to borrow river valleys as their sort of main course, and then the river is also there as a very useful backup. This is. Since the 1990s, this particular outfall, known as a CSO, has been the responsibility of Thames Water. As far as we can tell, there's no way of knowing how often or for how long it might be releasing untreated sewage into the river. So Ben and his band have been taking matters into their own hands. They're citizen scientists, wildlife enthusiasts, eco-warriors. Curiously, says Ben, Few of them are from urban backgrounds. Most fell in love with nature far away in the countryside. They patrol the length of the Brent, identifying particularly pungent or discoloured patches of water. They've even set up their own testing kit in the river to monitor the chemical content next to outfalls. Ben shares his logbook with us. It makes for grim reading. October 2021. Substantial sewage discharge into river from outfall near Travelodge Hotel on North Circular, Alperton. Oxygen levels crash, killing fish miles downstream and forcing eels to the surface. January 2023. Of unknown source, though clearly from an overflowing sewer, thousands of wet wipes deposited along the riverbanks, chronicled in hundreds of individual photos. April 23, 2023. Conducted a chemical test on clear discharge from the combined sewer outfall at Brent Lodge Park, Hanwell, recorded an ammoniacal nitrogen reading of 25 milligrams per litre, which is 10 times worse than a poor rating. You get the picture. Water UK, the industry body, says that companies will invest £10 billion on infrastructure by the end of the decade through what they call a modest increase in customers' bills. Many bill payers are asking rightly why that investment wasn't committed sooner. Instead of raising debt to pay for infrastructure, most water companies have spent the last few decades returning profits to their shareholders in the form of hefty dividends. That's not out of the ordinary. All companies do it. But English water is exceptional. It's the only country in the world to have a fully privatised water system. And within that system, it's Thames Water that has the biggest ratio of debt to capital. Here's Dieter Helm again. The thing about Thames is it's really big. And it really did push the envelope of financial engineering harder than uh, the rest of the pack. But it's a matter of degree, not kind. Sarah Bentley might have been the one to take the hit. But when you ask people about what went wrong at Thames, there's another name that surfaces constantly. That name is Macquarie. My name's Chris Wright. I'm an author and a journalist currently based in Singapore, and I'm the author of The Millionaire's Factory, which is a book about Macquarie. Australia's largest asset manager loves shopping for infrastructure, and they're everywhere. They've just got a finger in every pie. It's been it's been parking meters. It's been helicopter financing. It's been, you know, Polish seaports. It's been telephone directories. Everything you can think of, they've found an edge in, uh, and they continue to do so. During Macquarie's 11 years of ownership, between 2006 and 2017, Thames Water's debts soared. At the same time, dividends paid out to shareholders stayed high. Lots of debt, lots of dividends. It's a formula 
Macquarie has replicated around the world. It's even earned them the name the Vampire Kangaroo. But some argue that Macquarie's involvement at Thames cost them, not in a financial sense, but reputationally. Water utilities are emotional in some sense, in a way that most assets that investment banks get involved in are not. Water falls from the sky. People think they own it. It doesn't make any logical sense to British people to think that the private sector is in some sense involved in the water that comes from their tap. And so that, I, I think, has been a, a major reputational headache that Macquarie has had to deal with and perhaps underestimated at first. After Macquarie sold its stake, annual dividend payments dropped. Here's Alistair Cochrane, Thames Water's chief financial officer, speaking at a select committee on the water industry. To be absolutely clear, our shareholders, our current shareholders, have taken no dividends since 2017. However, Thames Water Company documents show it still paid £37 million of internal dividends to its parent company in the last financial year. Thames told us that these are paid to the immediate parent company to service debt obligations and other group costs. It seems like a rather Byzantine way to run a company that controls something so basic. It's worth noting, though, that Thames Water's situation is by no means unique. I'm not convinced that many or all of the existing water companies, particularly the privately owned ones, are going to make it to 2.30. It's the symptom of a whole dysfunctional system, hamstrung by a lack of accountability. Politicians accuse the regulator, Ofwat, of failing to ensure companies invest. Water company bosses blame the government for failing to legislate properly. And the Environment Agency grumbles that years of cuts have hampered its ability to prosecute. While the carousel of blame spins round and round, little rivers like the Brent start to disappear. And the public starts to catch a whiff of something terrible. The water companies are going to have to put an end to it because tourists are coming here and they're going to be told that they can't go in the sea. Then where are they going to go? This is the primary reason why people come to the seaside. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. 
We've been here before. Summer 1858. Temperatures in London are cresting more than 30 degrees Celsius. In the heat, the Thames has reduced to a vat of bubbling filth. Since the turn of the 19th century, the population of London has more than doubled. Cholera has arrived and claimed more than 30,000 lives in three successive outbreaks. Excrement runs freely in the city's streets and waterways. Teams of night soil men collect some of it to use as fertiliser. Most, inevitably, ends up in the Thames. As the miasma drifts past the newly built Houses of Parliament, ministers are forced to confront what becomes known as the Great Stink. It was so bad that they were hanging cloths covered in lime out of the House of Parliament windows and they're talking about moving Parliament. The smell is bad enough to rouse a response. Within just 18 days, MPs accepted a proposal for a new system to stop the sewage of the metropolis from passing into the River Thames. It costs about £300 million in today's terms. So Joseph Bazalgette, the chief engineer of London's Board of Metropolitan Works, is commissioned to build it. He sets out to replace 150 miles of old sewers and construct over 1,000 miles of new ones. Outflows like the one we visited on the Brent now accompany most open waterways. They mark a drastic change in the livelihoods of Londoners. Our sewage treatment works and, and our sewage treatment and piping network system was, was the envy of the world. The template was used all over the place. China, Shanghai, Egypt, Cairo, throughout Europe, Ireland, obviously. That's Ronnie Edmonds-Brown, a professor who's worked on urban rivers and aquatic ecology for over 28 years. She knows London's secret waterways like the back of her hand. Ronnie's acutely aware that London's sewers are no longer the glory they once were. Effluent is once again spilling into the Thames at an alarming rate. But efforts are underway to replicate the feats of Bazalgette. Thames Water is currently building the Super Sewer, a 15-mile-long tunnel, the width of three buses, that will pipe vast amounts of sewage to the treatment works at Beckton. Ronnie has had the privilege of being inside. It's huge. You go down in a lift. They're, they're very safety conscious. But it, it is a massive structure. And it's an amazing piece of engineering. She's impressed. But also sceptical whether it's enough. Even there, they say they expect several million tonnes of sewage to go into the Thames each year. Super sewers could help mitigate one of the key threats to Britain's rivers. But life has changed. Our waterways are having to cope with more than just poo. It's not just your sewage and microplastics and pharmaceutical drugs, but also for these forever chemicals. Forever chemicals, you might have guessed, don't break down in the environment. They can even build up in the human body and are sometimes toxic. Official monitoring data on them is sparse. So you've got all the road runoff and the chemicals that come with that. You know, it's not just lead, it's cadmium, it's zinc, copper. And again, that's a toxic environment for a lot of invertebrates. Back on the Brent, you can see the signs of where some of these chemicals might come from. Looking down into the swirling eddies of rubbish, it makes me wonder what happened to the Victorians' leadership on water. You know, seeing that, that might, you might think this is somewhere in the developing world. It's got quite a sort of raggedy feel to it. And yet, there we are. We've got birds singing, we've got ducks. We've got all sorts of life around us. We're kind of in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> 
So you can see a fallen tree here, great big fallen tree, and that's caused a kind of backup, a kind of dam of fallen bits of timber and then basically plastic waste. So you've got, what, hundreds of plastic bottles, footballs, pieces of polystyrene, and then you see those little white bobbles everywhere. The, the, the sort of infill, the kind of pixel, is single balls of polystyrene all the way across there. And this obviously gets swept down miles away, all the way down the river catchment to this place. This water is two or three metres deep. So... There's a character I've neglected to mention in this story. That character is us, the general public. We point and gawp when we see what's happening to nature around the world. Chemical spills from a derailed train in Ohio. Habitats submerged by the destruction of a dam in Ukraine. Forests set ablaze by human hands in Greece. But within our urban bubbles, those are foreign dramas that play out on a screen. There's something that's happening out there, in the huge, undepletable realm of nature, and not right next to us, beneath our feet, or outside the back door. I've been in a, a dry suit before, up to my chest, and been in floating chip fat that was being released from a, from a vent. That is disgusting. <laughs> this is Jamie Passmore, a ranger whose work covers parts of the Brent. We find a lot of the lime bikes. Uh, people just chuck those in the river. Um, electric cables, and we pulled out close to 200 tyres out of the river uh, that were dumped in by a you know garage further upstream. The good thing is, we're actually reusing those tyres on a golf course project at the moment, <laughs> so we're reusing them. There's a line from an article Ted Hughes wrote in 1993. He talks about a worrying disparity between the size of the rubbish-making population and the smallness of the earth. He argues that the act of buying things is part of an ancient biological drive, an apex predator's passion for the kill and for taking the trophy home. Seeing the suffocation of the Brent, you have to wonder whether it can survive the onslaught. This is nothing to do with a water company. This is more to do with consumerism, disposal of unrecyclables, just urban lifestyles, and just the, the, the fact of, uh, you know, the way that a river will sort of collect and gather waste. But, you know, it's not just that there's more waste. It's that there's less water to carry it away. The average Brit happily uses 153 litres a day through showers, toilets, dishwashers and garden hoses. In the US, it's more than 310. In Ethiopia, it's between 15 and 35. Rivers and reservoirs provide most of the UK's supply. But currently, 18% of them have more water being taken out than put back in. As the planet heats up, that can't last. Most water falls as rain in the west of the country while the east is gradually drying out. London actually gets fewer inches of rainfall per year than Beirut. On top of a changing climate, Britain needs to contend with building enough homes and growing enough food. The upshot 
is that water has suddenly become a political football. But the big constraint is lack of water. We just don't have enough water in the ground for all the new houses. And for the first time in its history, the Environment Agency is systematically blocking all major developments just because of that water scarcity. That's the Conservative MP for South Cambridgeshire, Anthony Brown, voicing his opposition to building a quarter of a million homes in the area. So the government can be as ambitious as it likes, but unless it can explain where the water is going to come from from those houses, uh, it's going to be undeliverable. Britain's housing crisis is impacting water quality in London too. Here's Ronnie again. Every time we build new homes, we have two problems. One, the sewage is going into uh, an overcapacitated system. There's nothing new built. Two, you'll get between 8 and 18% increase in surface runoff because you've got impermeable surfaces. And the surface water drains are over capacity, which is why we see flooding in London. It's got nothing to do with climate. It's got everything to do with an overcapacitated drainage network and poor land management, essentially. Similar conflicts are bubbling up across the country. On the River Wye in Wales, farmers and fishermen have competing visions about the water's purpose. The anglers say intensive poultry farming is to blame for declining salmon stocks and turning the river the colour of pea soup. The farmers ask who is going to whet the UK's appetite for £4 chicken. At what point will politicians start to worry about the cost of doing nothing? I'm not, I'm not absolutely not denying that it, it, it is a big issue, but, but it always has been it's interesting. I mean, I remember as a child in South Wales... Uh, swimming in sewage? Swimming in sewage, absolutely. Oh, yeah. It's not a risk I'd take. The sickness spreading in our waterways can have dangerous consequences. If you've got high bacterial levels, then you're going to get things like gastroenteritis. We know anecdotally that people whose dogs go into urban rivers often have problems, uh, intestinal problems. And it's not just animals. It's beginning to affect us too. The UK Health Security Agency is to try to establish why 57 people who swam in the sea off Sunderland as part of a triathlon 10 days ago became ill. Raw sewage was dumped into British rivers and coastal areas for over 1.7 million hours last year. Swimming against that tide, it's easy to feel defeated. Even Ben has his moments. I just thought to myself, this is crazy. What am I doing? Why do I think I can do anything about this? We've had pretty much two months of ongoing pollution from a number of different sources, one after another. And still it goes on, still there is this oil coming downstream. And I just thought to myself, this is, this is mad. I'm just, I'm deluded. But is it really madness to want to preserve your own piece of nature? Surely it's instinct. An instinct that many of us seem to lose when we move to the city. Is there a way to find it again? Gentle Brent, I used to know you, wandering Wimbleywoods at will. Now what change your waters show you in the meadowlands you fill? Recollect the elm trees... When the poet John Betjeman wrote about the Brent half a century ago, he was talking about a very different river. Ben is hoping he can bring it back. I'd like the water to be clean and fresh smelling. I'd like there to be no rubbish or much less rubbish. 
I'd like it to be unpolluted. I'd like it to be properly restorative so that someone who encountered it could just feel a little bit better for that encounter rather than being disturbed or sort of mildly disgusted and wanting to hide it away. But uh, and I'd like to get I'd like to be able to get trout into the river if we can make that happen. Um. It sounds ambitious. <laughs> and why shouldn't it be? The rivers that cover three percent of the UK landmass are some of the most diverse in the world. They're home to eels and otters, feather mosses and freshwater pearl mussels, white clawed crayfish, brook lamprey, bullhead, trout and grey mullet. Some of them are chalk streams, a geological rarity that is England's answer to the Great Barrier Reef. Out of around 200 in the world, England has 160. There's the Scottish Lochs, the Norfolk Broads, the waters of Windermere and Coniston. But even in our cities, there's more nature than you might expect. Look hard enough and you'll find stubborn colonies of seahorses and seals in the Thames estuary. Great crested grebe bobbing through Walthamstow's wetlands. The Brent, too, has its own unique character. It is a great habitat for things like endangered eels, kingfishers, other fish, and it's a great place of human solace. I think, I think rivers mean something to people. Uh, there's a reason why people sort of go to rivers or are drawn to water bodies. There's, there's, some, there's a sort of solace that it brings. I think, to a population. As we square up to the challenge of climate change, it's important to draw upon the little winds for inspiration. The Brent can be one of them, if we let it. As relentlessly as water seeks the ocean, it's fighting back. I think at times uh, in the past where there's been a pollution incident, riverfly numbers have just tailed off pretty much to zero. They just disappear, they get wiped out, zero. That means no life, no life in the river. And yet somehow we know that life keeps on trying to reassert itself and we see, you know, a kingfisher there. Well, the kingfisher is, is catching some little tiny fish in the river that have strayed up there and game little creatures that they are. But every time, every time we have a sort of recovery, population recovery of these things, it just gets knocked on the head again. Biodiversity can only truly thrive in rivers that bend like the Brent. Allowing them to flow naturally contributes to cleaner water and reduces the risk of flooding. But if we want the Brent to stand a chance, we've got to change our stagnant, greedy approach. Rather than encasing rivers in concrete and straightening them out, we should let them wind and meander. In terms of the habitat, well, it's boring, you know, just straight. Uh, you've got no place for fish to find refuge. You've got no place for um, organisms to take refuge if there's a flood event or a drought event. You know, the bed of the river should have, you know, patches of gravel and pools. Rather than viewing them as something to be used and mastered, we should find new ways to enjoy them. Paris is in the final phase of an historic cleanup, which will soon see swimmers and divers back in the River Seine. It was a no-go zone for almost a century because of the filthy water. We should reconnect with our rich, riparian history. I mean, we're a small island and everybody's near a river. 
and it, you know everything from Wind in the Willows to Ratty to um, Windermere to you know everything is about an experience of people from childhood onwards. In London, there's the Thames right in front of you. You know, you're virtually nowhere from the sea or from rivers. And the lockdown just added to that. But people always cared about the rivers. And acknowledge that a denatured city is a poorer and more unhealthy place to live. I suppose there's a kind of wide application there about how do we coexist in urbanised societies? How do we coexist? What is it? How do we sort of have a managed relationship which, with nature which is sustainable and kind of wholesome and gives people something. By 2050, its estimated cities will be home to 70% of humanity. There's no question, they have to be the places where we find solutions. It starts with ending our urban amnesia, seeking out and connecting with the blue and green spaces that break up our busy lives. As Betjeman wrote, the Brent is a gentle river. It's not the holy Ganges, or the torrent of Niagara Falls. But that makes the case even stronger. To prove it to ourselves that even a sick river can get better with time. Press three. If you're calling to report an issue relating to your property, press one. If not, or if you're a waste-only customer, press two. So I'm reporting the pollution on Mitchell Brook, which, uh... <laughs> there you go. Hey, Johnny. Uh, so, yeah, I've just been on my bike, probably round trip of about 50 miles, uh, going upstream up on the Brent, chasing pollution, where it's coming from. Found myself in a place called Monk's Park, and then there was a stream coming into it, full of shit and oily pollution. It was really horrible to see, but I got some pictures of it. Now I'm here on the Thames water hotline, calling in to report this pollution. Middle eight. Nice. One of the advisors will be with you soon. Please hold. As I was saying, I was on my bike going up the Brent this morning, chasing pollution, and it was really fun. But I got to Mitchell Brook, and there was a horrible load of oil and sewage coming into the river. It looked really troubling, but here I am on the phone to Thames Water listening. Hello? 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 Ah, hello, how are you doing? Hello, I'm good, how are you? Very well, very well. I'm just reporting a pollution incident on the River Brent. Yeah, sure thing, sure thing. Uh, I'll be able to help you out with that today. Can I take that a couple of details, please? For sure, definitely. Okay, can I get a first and last name? Uh, first name, Ben Morris. And the postcode of the, uh, of the issue? Is, is NW10-0. We're talking northwest London, Brent River Park. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Slow Newscast. It was written and reported by me, Barney McIntyre, and Immy Harper. The producer was Immy Harper. Sound designed by Hannah Varrell. The executive editor was Kerry Thomas.
tortoise. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.